You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you very much, guys, that you can't believe how perfect that song is. You'll, you'll see it a little bit later uh, for the message. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. It was so good to have Jim Acock and Ted McKinney both on the platform at the same time. They compete often for the title of the most interesting man in the world. Uh, if you talk to both of them, they got stories that you just wouldn't believe. And, and, and Jim at 91, Ted at 89, they both look great for the... <laughs> uh, not quite 89, <laughs> but they both look good for their age. Let's just say that. Can't believe that Jim Aycock is 91 years old, but he is. He was my pastor for many years. I'm delighted to be his pastor, and I still consider him my pastor in many ways. Um, how many times have you heard someone say, after they've worked at a task, say something like, I have done the absolute best that I could do on this task? And you know it's just not true. In fact, how many times have you worked at a task and you said, I've done my best, but really deep down you know you. I mean, you approached it with passion uh, and purpose, but you got distracted, you know, if you're natured a certain way, and you sort of got all focus, out of focus a little bit, and you really didn't give it your best effort. Maybe one exception to that uh, claim is Martin Luther. Martin Luther did his absolute best to be right with God. We've seen this over and over in this series on the solos. And I'm not going to take a lot, a lot of time to introduce that today. If you're here for the first time, go back on the website. Check out a, a few of these messages in the series or ask somebody close to you. What are the five solas? If they say, I don't have any idea, please come and tell me who it is that you were talking to. But... but so Martin Luther wanted desperately to please God, but his problem was he thought, you know, what if I, 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 I've done everything I can, but what if I've missed something? I've confessed every sin that I've ever committed that I know of, but what if I've missed something? Maybe I'm in trouble with God. And in fact, he grew to hate a God who required of him that which he wouldn't tell him. It's like, you, you won't tell me what you expect of me. Just think about it. Luther's understanding of Scripture led him to believe that he had to be good enough for God to love and accept him. Luther's understanding of Scripture led him to believe that. But until Luther taught seminary, he had never even read the Bible. Can you imagine? It was a far different day than our day is in the, in the early 16th century. He didn't have access. Very few people had access to the scriptures. And so your understanding of scripture was dependent upon what church leaders told you. And they told him, you've got to be good enough. They had systems in which, by which you could sort of work around being a bad person. But Luther's like, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. Surely there's, there's more to this than I'm being told, and I just don't know what it is I'm supposed to do. When Luther was forced to study the Scriptures, though, and he began to teach through the Psalms, 
And through Romans and through Galatians, his eyes were opened and he saw the truth of the gospel, the, the truth of God's provision for salvation in Jesus Christ. And when Martin Luther read Romans 1, 16 and 17, everything came together. It all came together in his heart and mind. Everything began to make sense. He understood that God does not expect us to do what we are incapable of doing, which is to live well enough to be saved, be good enough to be saved, but rather we are to believe what God has already done for us through Christ. Today's text is the portion of, the Reform, uh, of Scripture from which the Reformation was born. We'll look at other passages in the Old and New Testament as well, but Romans 1, 16 through 17 is our primary text, although it's set in context of verses 14 to 17. And Romans 7, 1, 17 just launches the rest of the book of, of Romans. It's like a, a summary statement for the rest of the book of Romans. Uh, this morning we're going to look at, at these four verses, verses 14 to 17 in Romans chapter 1. Would you please stand for the reading of scripture uh, as is our custom to honor God and his word. Paul, talking to the Romans, says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to, to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel. That's his obligation, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness, in it, in the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come this morning um, not as... Many are tempted to do when they come to church thinking well of themselves and thinking how good I am. But we come knowing that only the only righteousness that we have is from Christ. And we come asking you, Lord, to fill our hearts with the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel in ways that will help us to become more the people that you want us to be. In fact, it's our union with Christ that causes us to live like Jesus did. So may our faith increase as you said it does when we are in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Charlotte Arthur is uh, leading a Bible study, a women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings here at, at Grace Community Church on the book of Romans. Um, this past Wednesday morning, Charlotte and I were talking a little bit about Romans, about how wonderful Romans is. And, and, and somewhere along the way, we said, if you only had one book of the Bible, and Charlotte said, yeah, you know, the Gospel of John is, I said, yes, but, and I completed the, the, the sentence, but, but, but the Romans has this very precise, very systematic uh, description of the gospel. It, it, it takes it logically through the gospel from our sin all the way to the way that we live for Christ as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, so 
I, I think probably most theologians, if, if, if you put this to them and you said you've only got one book that you can hang on to, one book you can teach from, almost everybody would say Romans because it tells the gospel so beautifully well. Look, there's only one more session this coming Wednesday morning before the um, Christmas break. So be sure to come even still and sort of catch up on what you've missed and get ready to be excited about next year. We, we've got child care, so please be there uh, Wednesday morning. 9.30 uh, is when it starts. When you hear the word gospel in this room, I, I'm going to imagine you think in warm tones to mix all kinds of senses and stuff together. You, you just think warmly of the gospel. You're grateful that God saved you. And, and you know um, that he readily forgives your sins. Even though you sin on a daily basis as we all do. You may struggle with a specific sin in fact. That just tortures you. And, and, and leaves you guilt ridden. But on your best days as a believer you know that even that sin God forgives and you have hope that God is going to deliver you from that sin because of the power of the gospel. The gospel is a beautiful word from the Lord that promises blessings to you even in spite of your struggle with sin. Inside the church, the gospel is wonderful. But when you leave on Sunday morning, how do you think about the gospel? How do you think about the gospel in your dorm or your, in your apartment complex or at work or at a family reunion where there are a lot of people who think you are certifiably nuts for believing the gospel. You're just crazy. In the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul was writing to a, a, a church that was located in the center of power of, for the Western world. And Paul knew that when you take the gospel to these people, when you go to the most powerful people in the world that you know, and you say to them, uh, this peasant carpenter from, from uh, Jerusalem, an occupied territory, uh, lived this life and the religious leaders got mad of, at him and they requested our, uh, uh, the Roman procurator Pilate to put him to death, which he did. <clears throat> and then three days later he came back from the dead so that all people can be saved, Jews and Gentiles alike. What do you think they're going to think about that? Think about that kind of thing, by the way, before you start talking about how crazy and loopy the Mormons are. We sound pretty loopy ourselves, you know, with the gospel. And why do we believe it? We just do. But just imagine taking that message to a, a people that have so much power in the world. Did Paul make accommodation for these people? Say, look, you don't have to. Well, you know the answer to that. In Romans 1, 14 to 17, Paul made three statements that reveal his thoughts about the gospel, whether powerful people agree or not. He first said in verse 14, I am under obligation to preach the gospel to all races, all classes of people in all places. In verse 16, um, when, when Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes he was including the whole world, Jews thought, look, <clears throat> our relationship with Jehovah, 
our relationship with Yahweh is restricted to Jews. Now Paul, a Jew who was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, is saying, no, this gospel goes to the entire world. God is gathering people from all over the world, all races, all nations, all classes of people to himself, to the family of God. In understanding the preaching uh, or, or sharing of the gospel as an obligation, Paul acknowledged that the treasure we possess is too good to keep to ourselves. It's just like the old cancer analogy. If you have a cure for cancer, you can't keep it. You're obligated. Believers ought to do the right thing and preach the gospel. But Paul's obligation was a happy one in verse 15. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel. That's how you're feeling right now, is it? Come on, man, get through with this so I can go out and start witnessing. I can go to the mall or I can get on the phone and talk to my, my relatives who, who, who think that, that I'm nuts. And I, I can tell them about Jesus. Probably not. Look, look, most of the people that I know, I know several of you with the gift of evangelism. You're always looking for opportunities to share the gospel. But that doesn't mean they're always eager to share the gospel. It's almost like you're compelled to. Like, I have, to, I have to say this. Whether I want to or not, I, that's the gift of evangelism. Look, but Paul said, I am eager. I'm eager to share the gospel. You know why? Because he believed it to the level that <coughs> this makes the difference in where people will spend eternity, heaven or hell. So ask the Lord to give all of us. Let's ask the Lord to, 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 to have this eager desire to share the gospel. And last in verse 16. Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Don't you wish that were true. Of all of us. And truly. When you say. I, I, I want to share what I believe. But uh, it's just. Uh, in a sense we're ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, as I've already mentioned, verse 17 is an overview of the gospel that will be explained in much detail throughout the remainder of the book of Romans. It was the verse that led Martin Luther and other reformers to understand that salvation is given to us as a gift. It is not something we earn. It is not something that gradually comes to us as we partake of the sacraments, uh, as we are baptized. Ex opere operata, operato, I think is the way you pronounce the, 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 the Latin term, which means by the work accomplished or by the work worked. When you partake of the sacraments, when you're baptized, when the other sacraments, that's why our last rites are so important to Catholics, because it's a sacrament. And, 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 and the priest needs to be there overseeing the shepherding of a person from this life to the next when. When you participate in the sacraments, then you are gradually becoming more and more ready to stand before God in heaven. And if you don't make it, there's purgatory. And that sort of, that, that just purifies everything. But you'll get there sooner or later if you do the right things on earth. Well, as you're going to see in Romans, not that we're reading it all today, but... We're in such bad shape as sinners that there's no way. And unless God does something for us, and that's what Luther saw. This is a gift. It is not 
something. And by the way, these sacraments, the Lord's table that we visit twice a month, twice a month, first and third Sundays, baptism. Because we are just like all human beings, we love pendulums. When we got off that Catholic doctrine, we took this pendulum way over here. And, and, and the Lord's table and baptism do not mean nearly to us what they should. We're going to have three Wednesday nights in a row in January. Grace matters. We're going to be talking about sacraments. We're going to be talking about membership. Elders have been studying this stuff very intensely for well over a year and a half, two years, maybe going on close to three. We've been talking about this. If not at every elders meeting, almost every elders meeting. So don't make the mistake of saying everything Catholic bad, everything Protestant good. There's a whole lot of Protestant that's not good and a whole lot that the Catholics had right but then twisted it the wrong way. And if that sounds like we're the only ones that are right, no, that's not what it means. Look, there, there are, God, the church is in a whole lot of places. But the church has a tendency to move in the wrong direction. I'll, I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Look, here's the thing for Luther. He saw the gospel clearly. I, I went to the, to the optometrist the week before last. I'm waiting on new glasses. These are about to fall apart at any moment. And my eyes have stayed pretty steady. I'm legally blind in this eye. I, I don't need to tell you all of this. But my right eye stayed pretty Said he, my sister used to know which one was my good eye so she could poke at it, you know, instead of, instead of the bad eye. Or which is your bad eye because I want to poke the good one. But um, it, it, listen, I, I've had some real troubles in my life lately with regard to my eyes. When I'm watching a football game, I can't see the scores that are going by on the crawl. And this is a serious issue. And so I went to the optometrist. Really only because they called and said, hey, it's, it's time, as in really it was time a year ago to come and see me. So I went in, and my good friend, who we're actually having lunch with today, Bob Johnson, is my optometrist, and, and he said, can you see the difference? He said, your eyes have changed significantly in the last two years. And I'm like, yes, I can. It's amazing what I can see. Maybe you enough squinted like this and I, I, I don't mean that this is all about me this I'm making a point <laughs> I don't know what was funny about that but uh, <laughs> Allison will tell me later <laughs> I'm sure when when he would click those machines in just the right way man I could see so clearly and when you take gospel glasses and put them on you see it everywhere in Scripture. Men and women have taken the Scripture and they've pieced certain things together and they say, well, it's this system or that system. When you put glasses on that sees the gospel, that everything that we have from God is a gift and we cannot earn anything, then it's clear. And you want to say, hey, what's wrong with you? Can't you see? No, they don't have gospel glasses. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us these glasses to help us understand the truth of the Scripture. So, Romans 1, 16, 17. Let's jump into verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The word gospel means good news. But the good news of the gospel begins with the bad news that we are sinners. 
and we're apart from Christ. In this series, just in this short 10-week series in which this is week 8, we have already spent significant time in Romans 1, 18 through 3.20 where an extensive and devastating case is laid out against man because of our sin. Because of the sin that we inherited from Adam. And we have also learned from Romans 5, we participated with Adam in the garden. We're sinful and therefore completely dead in our sins. Not mostly dead, but all the way dead. And we cannot make ourselves alive. Unless God makes us alive, it doesn't happen. So that's bad news, but good news is coming. Romans makes it clear no one can stand blameless before the Lord on based on his or her merit. And in fact, this is stated in the Old Testament. Look, beginning somewhere in January, we're going to be look, beginning to look at the book of Isaiah. I'm really excited. I've had a hard time focusing on Romans 1, 16 and 17 this week, thinking about Isaiah. Um, which in many ways presents the gospel very clearly. But the gospel is all over the Old Testament. It's just that, again, if you don't have gospel glasses, you're, you, you, it, it looks distorted to you. Um, so in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. Verses all over the place. But, but they said, you know, there's this system of the law, this covenant that we have with God. And this is what he expects with us. And, you know, probably if we want to be right with God, we've got to follow this system just right. Well, nobody can follow the law perfectly. So they have to make allowances for not following the law in this way and that way. You think that the Pharisees, the Pharisees added <clears throat> hundreds of regulations. There are something like 31 extra biblical uh, requirements for the keeping of the Sabbath that the law doesn't give. But they're just building walls upon walls of walls to protect you. But, but those laws sometimes restrict you, but they oftentimes give you more liberty. Like in Jesus' day, people said, you can divorce your wife because uh, women didn't divorce men. Men divorced women in, in, in ancient times. And, and, and they said, you know, what if your wife... Puts too much salt in the food. Well, I think that's uh, grounds for divorce. I mean, that's, that's what was going on. You think of Jesus as restrictive when he says, look, um, you can only divorce your wife in the case of adultery. Well, that was a mercy to women who were being divorced for burning supper. Literally for burning dinner. So... All of these laws work, uh, they make it tougher, but they also make it easier in some way. All of these regulations that are added to God's law. And, and, and the Old Testament saints, they were working at the law. And they said, this is the way of salvation. Surely it is. So let's make it so that we can actually be saved. They didn't see in the sacrificial system that year after year, they had to come back to have their sins covered. And that there was... More to it than just good works. In fact, that salvation is by faith or comes through our belief in God's promises. So, Paul comes along, the New Testament, all of the apostles, the prophets come along. And in the face of this system, they said, no, 
the gospel is, we're sinners. Jesus lived the perfect life. He paid the price for our sin. And when we believe, when we repent of our sins and we believe, he, then his righteousness is exchanged for our sin. That's what he did at the cross. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. When you repent and believe, you will be saved. Robert Mounts captured this truth beautifully when he wrote this. The, the righteousness God provides has its origins in what God did, not in what people may accomplish. It is received, not earned. It depends upon faith, not meritorious activity. That was a big word. Probably never thought about merit and meritorious activity, but that was a huge part of the Reformation. That's what was going on. It doesn't depend on meritorious activity. God justifies the ungodly, not the well-intentioned. What makes the good news news is that no one would have come up with a plan that excluded their own contribution toward a future salvation. Close quote. It's true, isn't it? Who would have thought of this? We might have thought, oh, God's just, he's okay with everybody. He created it. He knows our weaknesses. And he's going to, he's just, in the end, everything's going to be okay. Look, we don't want that any more than we want a God that, that does that. Really? Do you want the, 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 the most cruel, wicked people? Do you want Hitler and Stalin and Lenin? You want those guys in heaven? Doesn't justice cry out? Well, the problem is all of us belong in the same category as them. And unless something is done, we can't do it on our own. But we like to think that we can do it on our own. And so consequently, we get busy about being saved, about bringing salvation to our own lives. <coughs> and it ends up, we start depending on ourselves. And it ends up, we start being proud. A few weeks ago, when we were in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, not of works, lest any man should boast. Didn't even talk about that, really. But that's the case. If we have, if we do good works and that saves us, then we've got something wherewith to boast. We can say, hey, look how good I am and look how bad you are. <laughs> I'm good enough. Uh, I don't think you're going to be getting there. But in Christ, if salvation is in Christ alone, we have nothing about which to boast. I mean, what is it about the idea that we are unable to contribute to our own salvation that makes people so angry? And what is it that no matter what we believe, even if we believe the gospel, we're always pushed toward a legalistic mindset. And legalism has a lot of different faces. It's not just people who are real stern and strict. It's people who follow a system, any system, that, that, that seeks favor with God on the basis of our actions. When you think about the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, you think, man, how, how were these guys just so like they were? You probably don't think about that when they began, Ezra was probably the first Pharisee. And they, they began, these people had, had been punished for their sins. God had, had sent them to Babylon. And they said, you know, we've broken the covenant with God. We don't keep the law. We've got our hearts are now toward God. He's got our attention. We, we realize how we've messed up. And, and, and the fact that he has saved us from destruction. That he has allowed us to live 
God surely loves us. We are his people. We want to please him. And that desire to please him by keeping the law was beautiful at the first. But over time, it became a means to, it became uh, the end itself. Not a means to, to an end. Not, not, not the desire to please God because of what he has done. But, but just to justify oneself. So somewhere... The Pharisees got it in their heads that they had to be good enough to earn their salvation. And when, and when you put, anytime you put emphasis on good works, righteousness very quickly becomes self-righteousness. That's what happened to the Catholic Church. It's exactly what happened to the Catholic Church. The best stuff written about doctrine that we have in all of church history was written by people in the third, fourth, fifth century. Uh, we've added to that, but the really hard work was done in those early years by what we would consider people in the Catholic Church. But somewhere it went badly, and they said, no, you've got to be good enough, and you, since you can't be good enough, God is going to help you be good enough. And that is a trap, isn't it? God will help you be good enough to please Him. In fact, I catch myself all the time saying, Lord, help me with this. And I, and I try to stop and say, let my union with Christ, let Christ live through me. And let him do the right things through me. Uh, God will help you pretty quickly becomes God helps those who help themselves. And nothing could be further from the truth. Paul explicitly states that the truth of the gospel is the source of power for our salvation. Once again in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who works hard and gains merit by uh, their good works and the good works of Mary and the saints. It's not what it says, is it? The gospel, and in fact, you won't hear this hardly at all today, and it's awkward for me to say it, but it's the truth. The preached gospel. And the preached gospel is not just the preacher on Sunday morning saying it. It's any time you share the gospel with someone else. The preached gospel is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes. So what does it mean to believe? That's why this beautiful... Um, new chair from the youth room, the new and improved youth room, if you haven't seen it, you really ought to see it uh, in the back, is up here. Now, if I were to say to you, I believe that stool is going to hold me up, am I telling the truth? Well, let's be precise, because this the theological language is precise. What I mean is, I think this stool will hold me up. I've got good reason for thinking it will. But I, I really don't believe, not yet anyway. So if I come to this chair, this could be dangerous, and I say, okay, I, I believe this stool will hold me up. Is it holding me up? Eh, not really. This is when I believe it. It's when I'm right here. Now, if, I, if this were uh, pre church synagogue, Jewish synagogue days, I would sit here and teach you would be standing the whole time. That's the way they did it, by the way. But I'm only going to be doing this when I'm old as Jim Maycock. Then I will be 
I'll be sitting on the, well, I won't be able to get on the stool at that point. Uh, but I, when we put our entire weight on Christ, that's what it means to believe. If this stool goes down, I'm going down with it. Everything, everything in me believes and rests and trusts in Jesus. It's not partial trust. It's not Christ plus. It's full 100% belief. Verse 17 says, for in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the righteousness of God is continually being revealed. That is the, the way the Greek reads. The righteousness of God is continually being revealed by God to us. <clears throat> if he does not make righteousness accessible to us, we cannot be righteous. The question is, do we become righteous or does God declare us righteous? According to Romans 1.17, and in the next several chapters, we're told that righteousness only comes from him, that he alone justifies us or makes us righteous. In other words, God declares us righteous. We don't become righteous, he declares it. When we believe that Jesus died in our place, salvation is ours. So, what does the righteousness of God mean? Uh, it, it, as it is described here anyway, there are several proposals for the precise meaning. John Stott summarizes them well in these three uh, <clears throat> ways. First of all, the righteousness of God is a divine attribute. He cannot be anything but righteous. That may be a little awkward wording, but it's, it's God cannot be anything else. He has to be righteous. Genesis 18.25 Abraham asked God, will not the God of all the world, will not the judge of the whole earth do right? And God's answer is always, always in Deuteronomy 32.4. But he, he gave it to Abraham, but, but even more so in Deuteronomy. Just keeps on over and over. God is always righteous. So it's a divine attribute, it could be. Or it could be a divine activity. His saving intervention on behalf of his people. Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. In other words, God's righteousness is, act, is, is seen in his divine activity in saving us. Or... <clears throat> Is it a divine achievement as seen in the work of the cross through which God justifies the ungodly? Not the worthy, but the ungodly. And he justifies us in a way that is consistent with his character. Romans 3, 21, 26. We've already looked at that in this series. Uh, Romans 4, 5 says, To the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. Going back to Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me say that again. Romans 4, 5. Write it down. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. 
So which of the three is it? I'm, I'm with John Stott when he says, why does it have to be one of the three? I mean, all three are at work here. It seems pretty clear. You could certainly make a case for any of these three as the meaning of the righteousness of God in our text. It, the, the, it's just so full. One thing is apparent. This is a righteousness that cannot be earned. It is given only as a gift. It is received by faith, not by anything we have done. So, and, and by the way, look, you've been hearing this over and over in this series. It's so important. It, it, it lays the foundation, these five solas, this, this statement of faith for Protestant belief. It lays the foundation for everything that comes from it. And, and there's plenty to come in the days ahead. But, but, but to understand Romans 1, 16 and 17 is crucial for us. So after we determine this definition of righteousness, we're immediately confronted with another question. <laughs> what does it mean that the righteousness of God is being revealed from heaven from faith for faith? So sometimes, not always, but sometimes, when you've got three or four possibilities uh, about what a text means, uh, and all, all of them could be, you could make a case for all of them, there's a pretty strong possibility that the scripture is so full that it, it encompasses all of these things. And it seems this way, again, from faith for faith. So again, from, from John Stott, here are the four strongest possibilities about what it means to, uh, from faith for faith. First, from God's faithfulness to our faith, it always is in that direction. It's always in that direction. God's faithfulness to our faith. Second, the spread of faith through evangelism. That's a significant emphasis in Romans 1, 14 to 17. Again, we cannot sit on this. David, Jim, somebody said something this morning about evangelism. I think it was David and just how important it is for us to understand the truth of, of God's wisdom that we can share it clearly with others. Um, so the spread of faith through evangelism <clears throat> and then growth in our faith from one degree of faith to another. Hallelujah that we do grow in our faith. Uh, the older you get, look, we all constantly are challenged with things that are well beyond our ability. You know, when, when people say God will not give you more than you can handle, that's, that's not true. Uh, God will give you more than you can handle. That, that often is the case, but the, but, the, but the beauty of it is he is drawing us to himself to help us trust him and let him do the work in us instead of us constantly trying to fix everything. Sometimes we can't fix it. And, and when it's beyond us, God is calling us to trust him, to believe him. Last, salvation and the Christian life is marked by faith from first to last. The point of faith alone, sola fide, is this. Any goodness in us has been accomplished by God through the work of the cross of Christ. We did not earn our salvation. We have been declared righteous. God said it and it is so. Our responsibility is to believe. <clears throat> Salvation is not by faith plus good works, but by faith alone. Faith in what? Faith in the finished work of Christ. 
the righteousness of God, the promises of God, the provision of faith are all wrapped up in the cross. How much time do you spend thinking about the cross of Christ? Probably not much through the week, but that's where everything flows out of the cross of Christ. The resurrection is implied. It's assumed at the cross. In the cross, Jesus is not going to stay dead. We know he's coming out. It's been promised by God. But all of this great work of our righteousness or the righteousness of Jesus being credited to us is wrapped up in the cross. So the important question today that you have for people is not, do you believe in God? If you ask somebody, do you believe in God? They say, yes. And you say, oh, great. Well, we've got a lot in common. Well, not necessarily. The question is, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Even more specific. Do you believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross? What Jesus accomplished for our salvation on the cross that our sin was being judged by Jesus who took our sin upon himself. And that the wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus. He took our punishment. So that we might live. So may I ask you this morning. Do you believe? Not, not do you believe in God. Not, do you even, not even do you believe in Jesus. But do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? I thought when I began studying this text that I would put serious focus on the last phrase of, of verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. Which is a direct quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Just before Israel is going to be destroyed by, by Babylon. The, the Lord tells, or Ju Judah was going to be destroyed by Babylon. The Lord tells Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, what, 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 this, this makes no sense. <coughs> the wicked are being punished by those who are even more wicked. How does that, it doesn't add up. In fact, I, that is our system, isn't it? <clears throat> you're good, you're rewarded, you're bad, you're, you're, you're punished. Well, God's, Habakkuk says it doesn't make sense. And God essentially says, trust me, the righteous shall live by faith. So I wanted to go there, but alas, that's going to have to wait for another day. For now, just a few quick thoughts about faith and our relationship with God. It's been mentioned several times in this series that if faith is going to be meaningful, it must have the proper object. Faith in Christ alone. If you say, I have faith that everything is going to work out okay, then you're likely expressing faith in some general principle of the universe or there's a God who wants everything to work out for me. And if I'll just follow my dreams and have faith, everything's going to be okay. But what if the illness gets worse or your children go astray or you are unemployed for years? Look, I can promise you, if you believe, if you have tendencies to believe this prosperity gospel, the day will come where you will say, either there's no God or I got it wrong. Better to trust God right now with whatever's going on in your life and don't assume that if you are good enough or that if you have enough faith that everything's going to work out. Our promises are not in this world. They're in the next. We have the 
incredible joy here. And God gives us taste all the time, little pictures of what heaven is going to be like. But the whole world may go to pieces, your whole world. And if you trust God, you're right in the place that he wants you. And when you trust him, when everything is going to pieces, <laughs> there is love and relationship that you just could have never dreamed of. Dreamed of when you thought that, well, God's just making my life really great. Faith in faith is not going to sustain you. Or it could be that you have faith in yourself. Whenever we're seeking salvation by good works, our faith must be in us, in ourselves. Even when you pray, help me, Lord, to be good enough to get into heaven. Are you better than the Pharisees were? Jesus said, your faith, your, your life your good works must exceed those of the Pharisees if you're going to be acceptable to a holy God. Far better that your faith rest in Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, exchanging his righteousness for your sin. Repent and believe. Put all of your weight, all of your weight on Jesus. Trust his work and nothing else. Look, if, if you're here this morning and, and you have never known this peace with God, you've never experienced what Martin Luther did. And it's not that Martin Luther had this great experience. It's just that he said, oh, that's what the scripture means. I believe it. And all of a sudden, all these years of agony, of trying to be good enough and confess his sins. And <clears throat> he had peace. If you have never known God's peace in your heart, pray the prayer that Martin Luther was taught to pray by his mentor and friend, Johann Stoffitz. And this prayer is found in Psalm 119.94. I am yours. Save me. You may need to pray this prayer right now. There's so much implied here. I cannot do this on my own. I am a sinner deserving of condemnation. But you have done for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I believe. Save me. I am yours. Save me, Jesus. God exchanges Jesus' righteousness for your sin. And you believe. Think about what a beautiful picture baptism is. Jesus goes into the waters. And John the Baptist says, I'll, I'll never... No, I need for you to baptize me. It's not that, that, that I should baptize you. And Jesus says, no, this must be done for righteousness. And Jesus goes down into this water that is polluted with the filthy sins of all kinds of sinners. And he identifies with us. And when we go into these baptismal waters... Our sins are buried and we come up righteous. That's the picture that Romans 6 talks about. That baptism connects our union with Christ in a very visible, tangible way. So if you've never been saved, cry out, I am yours, save me. For the believer who is here this morning struggling with sin in ways that you think you know that believers just ought not to struggle. Pray the same prayer. I am yours. 
save me. This does not mean you need to be saved again, but it, need, it means that you need to remember from whence your salvation comes. It doesn't come from within you. It comes from the Lord. It is not of your salvation. It is not of yourself. Salvation is not of yourself. It is from the Lord. It is the same with spiritual growth. Do we sanctify ourselves or does God sanctify us? He sanctifies us. How? That's a whole other thing. Well, you know, anybody have anywhere to go? Um, if you believe the righteousness of God has been credited to your account, if you believe, then the righteousness has been credited to your account. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he is pleased. He still disciplines his children, but he does so in love. His heart is for you. Dear believer, his heart is for you. You're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how we're going to stay together. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to put two nickels together. To, I, I just don't know. I don't know how I can keep going when I struggle with this sin at this level. His heart is for you. If you picture God as a stern, judging, mean parent who is like this, when you've sinned, ah, why you just leave me alone? Why don't you waddle around in your guilt for a while? Prove that you're not going to do that again. Then come. That's not it. That's the wrong picture altogether. The picture is the prodigal son. When you repent, the instant you repent, he is running toward you with open arms, enveloping you in his embrace. Repentance is a gift given to you in mercy that leads to joy, not an embarrassment that leads to disappointment with yourself. How, have you said this week, Lord, I don't even know how I can come to you with this. I mean, I, I knew I was going to do it and I did it. Repentance is a mercy. Perhaps Martin Luther's understanding of God's mercy and grace is why the first of his 95 theses reads thus. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent! He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Look, it's important to note that Luther went on to say that when one confesses his or her sin, a, 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 the repentance of a changed heart will lead to a changed life. Even so, if repentance is a daily exercise, we understand that we will only be perfect when we stand in Jesus' presence. So some of you probably feel you're barely hanging on. Just, just remember this. It's not so much you holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. Have you sinned? Repent. Confess your sin. The word confess, hamalageo, it means to agree with God about your sin. Don't make excuses for it. Don't say, well, nobody's perfect. Agree with God. Yes, this is, this is grievous. And when you repent, then you will remember that Jesus died for your sins and nothing has changed since the day you were declared righteous. If you don't remember that day because you never remember a time that you didn't believe in Jesus, 
that's okay. If your trust is in what Jesus has done for you, not in what you can do for him, then you're saved. In fact, the covenant family is the way that we should have more and more of those kinds of people who say, you know, I really don't remember when it was, but I know my hope, my only hope is in Christ. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, we'll close with this, says this. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, how do we receive Christ? By faith. So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The Christian life is faith from beginning to end. Faith alone in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, uh, your word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preached word of Christ, the gospel. Lord, give us all those gospel glasses that we might put them on and see everywhere things that we missed before or things that were blurry to us. Lord, may we understand that the faith you have given us to believe that Jesus died for our sins is the faith that will sustain us. And it's not faith in faith. It's not faith in ourselves. It's faith in the finished work of the cross. All of our difficulties, Lord, all of our sin, all of our troubles, all of the, all of the things that go badly, go wrong. Meet at the cross. Bring us to that place. And cause us to believe. Thank you for what you have done. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.